you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Interesting, we had a, a big feast here last Friday night, and uh, what a blessing it was for those that were able to come. Something I shared was that, uh, and it wasn't planned, it was just something that was on my heart to share towards the end of our time together, as we had a time of worship after dinner, uh, was that... Uh, it was a difficult week for me. It's a blessed week because I, you know, I, I get to, I get to be immersed in God's word all week throughout the week. And, and yet when it comes to a difficult passage, uh, it can be tough. We're in a difficult passage this morning, but I want you to understand. And what I shared with the church is that as we look here in first Thessalonians five at the wrath of God, I'm going to skip right to verse 9, and we're not going to even get close to that this morning. We're going to go through three verses. Because in verse 9, Paul the Apostle tells the Thessalonian church and tells us by extension that we are not appointed unto wrath. The church will escape the wrath of God. We'll talk about all of that and look at some details as to why. And obviously, uh, it relates back to the cross. But it was a, a great night from that standpoint because... I just, it was water to my thirsty soul because I had been looking at God's wrath all week. And, uh, what a blessed time that was. So as we get into this, I want to look at last week, we studied in the first half or the last half of chapter four here in first Thessalonians. And when we were looking at that, we followed the context of the passage first. If you remember, we taught what that passage meant to the Thessalonians in context. And then we came in the latter part of our study, we came and talked about how that applies to us, looking at the rapture of the church, looking at the, the when Jesus comes and takes, he comes for his church, as opposed to the second coming where he comes with the church. And we're going to be looking at things that lead up to that this morning. So we looked at what was happening with these Thessalonian Christians there in the first century, uh, as Paul had, he had really done a remarkable job in the very short amount of time that he had with them. He was only with them, we're told, for three Sabbaths in the book of Acts, perhaps up to two months, we don't know, but a very short amount of time. And he'd done a remarkable job instructing them about events that were connected to the coming of Christ. However, his work had been cut short. Uh, persecution, trouble had come up in Thessalonica after just a short time, and uh, Paul had to leave. And so in doing so, he appointed Timothy, uh, a young guy that he had picked up along the way in Lystra in his second missionary journey, and appointed Timothy to stay in Thessalonica, to go back to Thessalonica, and to nurture and to feed into, to begin to build up that church. They were a newborn fellowship. They were only a very short, uh, maybe a month old or perhaps two, we don't know, but they were very young at that point. And Paul having to leave was extremely concerned that he would have to ensure the welfare of this church going forward. As Paul was sending Timothy now, there's little doubt in my mind that the text doesn't tell us that he would have given Timothy specific instructions on what he felt was important for Timothy to relate to the Thessalonians as he went back and spent time with them. Paul, in the meantime, had to leave 
he traveled to Corinth, and we could get into the whole thing. He goes to Berea first, and, and then down to Athens, and then over to Corinth, and, and yet he ends up in Corinth, where he begins, he meets up with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They begin to spread the gospel there. They're fellow tent makers. So he moves in with them and, and they get together and they begin to do the work there as Paul waits for Timothy to come back from Thessalonica with his companion Silas, who had been with them all along the way on this Paul's second missionary journey. Timothy, as we read earlier in this letter, had shared that the Thessalonians were indeed a model church. The word had gone out to them. They had received God's word. They had come and large numbers were coming to Christ and they were already beginning to branch out throughout the entire region of Macedonia with the gospel. They became a hub. The Thessalonian church became a hub for the churches throughout the whole region. So, the other thing about that, and something that's very important that we understand, is that they were living their lives in a continual expectancy of Jesus' return. And Paul had, he had sort of fed that into them before he left. Little doubt that Timothy was reinforcing that. Uh, and that as this model church, they were living, yes, living for the Lord and living, waiting for his return. At the same time, they had some real concerns. We looked at that last week. They were very concerned about the disposition of those among them who had died. Uh, they didn't remember the New Testament was coming into being at this point. It, it, they didn't have something written for them to rely on to look at. How do these things work? What are the nuts and bolts of this thing uh, about Jesus's coming? And so they're concerned. They didn't know what had happened to their loved ones. They didn't know if, if they had missed somehow Jesus's coming. And so they were inquiring, and they were inquiring of Timothy. Now Timothy gets back, reports these concerns to Paul after he'd come to Corinth, and then Paul would in turn address those concerns as he now writes back to the Thessalonians. Remember, he had wanted to go to, to them in person and we're told earlier in this letter that Satan hindered him. He tried time and again to get back to go and because he really wanted to continue the work that he had started there, but he wasn't able to do that. The net result of that is he wrote to them, and that is great news for us because we can sit here this morning and check it out because we get the advantage of seeing what was in his heart and on his mind as he communicates back to this, the Thessalonian church. So in doing so, in writing this letter, the first thing he does in this section anyway, is he calms their concerns, telling them specifically that their loved ones who had died, as well as any of Christ's followers who had ever lived, would be resurrected before those of us who are still alive. Uh, we looked at that last week. We looked at the rapture, that when Jesus comes, he comes for us in the air and coming for his church. He wouldn't step foot on the earth when he comes for his church, but he, he he shared that those who had died would rise first and those who were alive would be caught up to meet with the Lord in the air. We looked at that word, the Greek word harpazo, uh, and many people <laughs> over time will, will make the claim, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. But if you look at it, we looked at it last week, the Latin word for harpazo is raptus. And that's where we get the word rapture from. So it is indeed there. You just have to do a little bit of linguistics to get there. 
and for me, I, I look at that and I just think, you know, that it's just awkward to try to make something not there that is very clearly there to support some type of a position that can excuse these things away. Many have done that. And that's not what we're going to do because we, we believe that this is the word of God and we're going to go through it verse by verse. Uh, the hard stuff, the easy stuff and everything in between. And this is a hard passage, not for us, but he outlines the coming day of the Lord, which is a very sobering event. So during the rapture of the church, Paul, he explains to them that those who had died would rise to meet him in the air. That at that time we looked at and we looked at a, a, a parallel passage, First Corinthians 15, where Paul outlines there that that it was at that point when the rapture takes place that we will receive our glorified bodies. Now we have a body that is fitted for Earth, and and we all know it. Believe me, I know it every morning when I get out of bed. This is, I mean, this body. I mean, from the moment that we're born, it goes into a state of decay. And it ages and it wears out. <laughs> and yet then when we have our glorified body, I think about the example we have in scripture is the Lord Jesus himself. That after his resurrection, when he is in his glorified body, if he wanted to be somewhere, he just showed up. And if there was a wall between them, it didn't matter. <laughs> he would just walk through it. He was able to go, to come and go at will. And, and folks, I don't know what our glorified bodies will look like. Uh, we know that they'll be recognizable. We're told that, again, in 1 Corinthians, that that we will be recognizable, we'll recognize one another, but it will be a new body. It will be a glorified body. It will be one that's fitted for heaven. And praise God for that. So, in our last study, we focused on what Paul had to say regarding the rapture. Again, him returning in the air to gather believers to himself. What we're primarily going to focus on today is what Paul taught them regarding what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And that's the time of God's coming judgment upon the ungodly. Something I want to mention is here is if we look in the book of Revelation, we see the fulfillment of what's called Daniel's 70th week uh, there. In the, and what it is, it's the last seven year period of time that the Lord revealed to Daniel Back in Daniel chapter 9, the focus we see there is he talks about the focus being on Israel and on the godless nations of the world at that particular time. It's not about the church. There's no mention of judgment in connection to the rapture of the church. Uh, and we see that the church, if you look in the book of Revelations, in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times. Significant. From chapters 6 through 16, which are a very thorough examination of what's going to happen when the wrath of God is poured out, the church is virtually non-existent. It doesn't show up in those pages of Scripture. What we get from that suggests to us that that is after the Lord has taken us out of here and taken us home to be with Him. So, in the meantime, we as believers... We are still going to go through tribulation. And I don't mean capital T tribulation like the great tribulation, but we have trouble in our lives, don't we? There are times that come up that stress us out. There are times that we go through challenges, trials, painful things in our lives. 
we could use the word tribulation or trouble in that sense when we speak of those things, but, but keep in mind that the difficult times that we go through are not the cataclysmic events that are outlined in Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period. So Paul had answered their concerns about the rapture, especially about believers who died and where they'll be when this whole thing takes place. Now, as we read, as we get into chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. He's going to address their concerns regarding the day of the Lord, which is an entirely different and distinct event altogether. You've got to make a clear delineation between the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord, that time when God's wrath is poured out. We will not be here. Essentially what Paul's doing here is he's saying, look, I've told you what's going to happen with us, whether we're alive or we're asleep. Again, sleep being a euphemism for physical death, because for a believer, death, physical death is not the end of it. He says, now let me tell you what's going to happen with them. And I want you to pay attention to the use of pronouns in this pattern. I'm not talking weird pronouns. We've got kind of weirdness out there with pronouns. It's not going to say she, her, they, them. But what he is going to say is that when he speaks of the church, he uses the word you because he's writing to the church. When he speaks of the unbelieving world, the Christ-rejecting world, he uses the pronouns they and them. That's a very simple but very effective way to parse through this passage to know who he's addressing, because he's not addressing the church when he refers to the wrath of God being poured out. Again, supports everything we've looked at to this point in this letter. So beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So first of all, when Paul speaks of the times and the seasons here, that phrase is only found three times in all of God's word. Uh, we see it in Daniel chapter 12, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, where the, remember the men are there before Jesus ascends. He begins to, to levitate off the ground and disappears in the clouds. They Right before that, they say, well, tell us when are you going to come back? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Well, we see it again here in 1 Thessalonians 5, because in general, every time you see that, it's a reference to end time events. Now, when we look at it, we look at times and seasons. The first word that we look at here is times. What that refers to is chronological time. Uh, we can talk about, look at that as calendar time. That would be a, a point in time that we can see on a clock or a calendar, something like that. Now, the word seasons is a little different because it carries the idea of events, like the seasons of the year. Right now, we're in the fall season. The next season will be winter. We just came out of, if you look at sports, there was baseball season, and now we're in basketball season, things like that. So it's a reference to events. It's a reference to not a chunk of time, but really more oriented towards an event. So in context here, what Paul is telling the Thessalonians to keep in mind He's saying, look, they had wondered about the timing of the end time events that Paul had already taught them. Now, when we finish this letter, we're going to go right into 2 Thessalonians. I, at first I was thinking, well, maybe we'll go into one of the Gospels and we will do that probably after that. 
But yeah, we're on a roll here with <laughs> this stuff. And, and I really, Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians pretty close together. And so for us to have a complete and accurate view, we really need to go through these letters together as well. So this chapter 5, this is the last chapter in First Thess, and we'll go right into Second Thessalonians because there are some wonderful things to look at there. Now, once we get there, we'll see that the believers in the church at Thessalonica, they actually believed that they had missed the rapture. And they also thought that because of the persecution, the hardship, the suffering that was going on as a result of them coming to Christ, they were going through a lot. They thought at that time that they were in the day of the Lord. They thought that it had already come about, that the, that the rapture they missed, and now they're seeing God's wrath be poured out. And that just wasn't the case. So Paul's writing to correct them in that letter. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't have concerns. They had real concerns because of the persecution, uh, as to what was going on. And, and again, part of what Paul's doing, that's why I believe he begins in verse 1. He says, there's no need that I should write to you. Why? He says, because I've already told you. I've already instructed you on these things. And that's why I believe he's reminding them. He's saying, look, I, I shared with you when I was with you. He probably told Timothy to reinforce it. We don't know. But he's saying, look, there's no need that I should write to you but assumed there is, he's like, well, I'm going to do it anyway, because he wants to be sure that he's sure that these people understand and know the, the chronology, the timing of the events that he's talking about, the times and the seasons. So he wants them to remember that what he taught them regarding the day of the Lord, which he's going to go over here, beginning with these verses, he wants them to understand that. And again, we'll talk about that this we're just going to hit on it this morning. Like I said, we're going to hit three verses this morning, uh, and then we'll continue next time we get together. We'll continue looking at this day of the Lord and what that means to us, as well as what it meant to them in their day. Now, as we look at this in verse two, the word day is important. It's used in the Bible in various ways. It could refer to a 24 hour day, and it often does. Uh, you know, when I think about this is the day that the Lord has made, or I, I think about what's your birthday, that's a specific 24-hour day. But it also can refer to a period of time that's more than a day. Uh, and that it's clear in God's word that it's used that way pretty often. It's like, if I were to say, well, you know, back in my parents' day, I'm not talking about a day in my parents' life. I'm talking about back in their lives in this period of time that there was a period of time that I'm making reference to. And that's more how this is oriented in here when he talks about the day of the Lord. He's not talking about 24 hours. He's talking about a period of time. He's speaking of the extended period of time beginning uh, with when the day of the Lord begins and we go through it's that 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period of time that is the day of the Lord. It's a time when God will judge the world and he will punish the nations. Very clear. This is not a time that we will be here, but it will be a time where hell on earth breaks loose. I mean, where God's wrath will be poured out. And I'll tell you, it's not going to be an easy time for people that are here during that period. So, the other thing about this is from the beginning of the church, and even in the Old Testament, uh, believers have wondered, God, when are you going to judge the wicked? 
I'll tell you what, I turn on television or I look, you know, I have a, a whole list of tabs in my computer when I open it uh, to some what I think are more reliable news sources. Got to be careful with that. But and, and I'll look and there are times where I'll just groan and I'll say, oh, Lord, how long? How long? And you look at the, the evil that just seems to be multiplying out there. It's, it's just building and there's momentum and the, the schemes of evil men that are being carried out, the corruption and all of the garbage. It's like, Lord, how long? That's been the posture of believers throughout history. And the Bible teaches that there is a time and we can have confidence in that. When Paul writes here about the day of the Lord, it is a time when God will judge. He will avenge evil. It will happen. It's a time that he's set aside. It's a time that he's determined in which he will judge. And folks, we can bank on that. And I'll tell you, and we'll look at it towards the end of the, the, our study today. We can take comfort in that. It's a time when he'll deal directly with a Christ-rejecting world. And I believe the Bible teaches that that period of time, that seven years ends with the second coming of Christ when he sets his foot down on the earth. Remember, when he comes through the church, he comes and he comes in the air. The second coming, he comes personally to earth. When he sets his foot down on the earth, that will end that time of great trouble on the earth. And that's when he will set up his millennial kingdom where he will rule and reign personally from Jerusalem with a rod of iron and and that, that he will reign for a thousand years. That's what the Bible tells us. And how I look forward to that day because we come with him when he comes back in the second coming. The church is coming along with him at that time. So as we look at the Old Testament, we see that the day of the Lord is used 19 times throughout the Old Testament. And every single instance in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is used with a reference to God's judgment, which is going to come upon the world. At that time, it was in various ways regarding Israel, and but ultimately the judgment that God has on planet Earth. You can find it in places like Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah 13, Amos chapter 5, Joel chapters 2 and 3, Zephaniah chapter 1, on and on. Uh, it's a major theme that runs through the Word of God. Here's the point. There are people today who actually deny that God will judge the wicked. Uh, moral relativism, reducing God to man, I mean, that's a dangerous thing. I see people do that, and it, it makes me kind of bonkers. Well, they'll, attri- they'll attribute and give attributes of men to God. He he says, I am not a man. I am above you. I am infinitely above you. In in theological terms, he is transcendent, infinitely above and separate from us. He is infinitely holy, infinitely pure. We could get, oh boy, I could rabbit trail on this stuff. I love looking at the attributes of God and how he works that out through the character of God. We'll get to that in a few minutes. The Bible is very clear. The point is, the Bible is very clear that God will judge. It'll happen. It's part of why we study the prophetic word here. Uh, Since we started this, I've had so many people uh, that in my circle and people in the church, uh, people that know that this is where we're at, what we're teaching, they'll say, you know, wow, you guys aren't afraid to teach prophecy. 
And, and my, it, it, it sounds odd to even think that because it's like, well, of course we would. It's in God's word. But that's not a lot of times the prevalent attitude out there in the Christian world. It is here and it's important that we cover it because if we're going to teach God's word verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book, we're going to hit on the easy stuff and the hard stuff and everything in between because we have to get the full counsel of the word of God. Paul's heart, he wanted the Thessalonians to know. He wanted them to be informed. And that, folks, hasn't changed. That's our posture towards these things as well. So as we look at all of this, the question then becomes, in practical terms, what can I, a Christian who is going to escape God's wrath, I will not be subject to his wrath because I have the blood of Jesus over my life. So what do I do on this side of the rapture? And how do I live in a way that enables me to warn others of the day when God's wrath will be poured out on a world that is actively rejecting him? Glad you asked. <laughs> For the answer to this question, we've got to look at the scripture. We turn again to the scripture. Now, the reason we do that is that's something that we're told to do. Paul tells us, he gives us an example from God's word that the, the scriptures are there for our instruction. In Romans 5.14, we read, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. They're here for our instruction. This isn't just fun Bible stories. This is here for us to learn. How do we interact? How do we respond? How do we live in light of these things, in light of the fact that here we are, New Testament Christians, living in exceedingly evil times, and they're getting worse by the day. How do we live in light of that and be effective with the people around us? Let's look at some examples from the Word. One example is one that we all know about, and that's from the book of Genesis. And it's the account of the flood. Now, the Bible talks about Noah here. He's, it tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And I think that's an interesting characterization of him. And so what that means is that while he and his sons were building the ark for about 120 years, if he's a preacher of righteousness, then he's talking about the righteousness of God. He's not talking about his righteousness. He's speaking about the righteousness of God. And when the flood came, the heavens and the springs of the earth opened up. And as a result of the flood, only eight people were saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their three wives. So eight people come through. For everybody else, they were swallowed up when sudden destruction, hold on to that, came upon them. Through the flood. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus compares the days of Noah to his coming. Uh, and, and folks, I, you know, I, August before last, uh, some of you know, uh, those of you that have been here for a while, uh, my wife and I were out at the beach crabbing one day, and uh, she went to the ladies' room, and I went to go load the car, and she came out, and I was lying dead on the ground behind our car. And I ended up being in the hospital for a month. My organs failed and just went through a lot of stuff. 10 days before my brain cleared enough to be able to know what, where I was, what, what my name was. But it was, it was an interesting time because there in the hospital, 
the Lord began to pour into me. The first thing he, he showed me was be still. Psalm 46.10, be still. And, and the Lord showed me in that time, John, I've got you still. But the very next passage he gave me was, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of, of the Son of Man be. This passage that we're going to look at here. And I, I'm going, Lord, that's a really weird hospital verse. I mean, I would think it'd be like, you know, get well, or, you know, I'm the God of all comfort and the God of healing or whatever. It's like, what do you mean? And, and, and what the Lord began to stir in my heart, because he changed my life. He changed the trajectory of my, my ministry, changed the trajectory of our marriage. He, I mean, he just changed a lot of stuff in that event in our lives. My point is, is that I began at that point to have this tremendous burden in my heart. That Because, you know, when I got up to go crabbing that day, it was just another day. I threw the crab traps in the car and we went off, to had an appointment and went off to the beach and had a good time doing what we were doing, caught a couple of really nice Dungeness crabs and, and it was just another day. I could have no concept that by that afternoon I would virtually be lying dead on the ground behind my car. That's what the Lord impressed on me as it was in the days of Noah. And that's what it is now. These people have no concept. You get up in the morning, it's just another day. And he's saying, that's what the day of the Lord is going to look like when it comes. So how do we respond? Matthew 24, Jesus speaking here, they had asked him, you know, Lord, tell us, when will these things be? When will be the promise of your coming? He says, but that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about what we're looking at here in First Thessalonians. Another example, Sodom and Gomorrah. A couple of angels come, they visit Lot. <laughs> they go into his house, tell him, look, Lot, the city's going to be destroyed. You need to get your family out of here. So Lot, he goes about doing that. His two sons-in-law, just, eh, yeah, whatever. You know, they, they put him off. They say, no, we're not, we don't believe that. So he leaves with his two daughters and his wife, and, and unfortunately his wife looked back. We know all about that. And turned to a pillar of salt. But they got out. They're the only ones who got out. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plains, were completely and utterly destroyed as God's judgment fell upon them. Let's look at another one. In the New Testament, we find Jesus warning the Jewish people of the time uh, that was coming in the future when the temple would be destroyed. He comes down the Mount of Olives. He looks at the city. I, and I remember coming over the crest of the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is right there. I mean, just right there. And, and when he saw that, he began to, to sob. It says that Jesus, no, he wasn't just weeping. He was sobbing because he knew that the judgment of God was going to fall on that city. And he prophesied against the Jerusalem. You killed the prophets I've sent to you. And you missed the day of your visitation. Outlined in the book of Daniel, by the way, the 69 weeks that we look at. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but, you know, I just, you know, oh, I, could, I just could dive into that. 
But he's saying, look, you missed it. I would love to have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Therefore, judgment will fall. And in 70 AD, after a four-year siege against the city, the Romans, under a general by the name of Titus, went on to become an emperor. They broke through the, the, the siege banks of the city, and they just slaughtered thousands upon thousands of people. The people that weren't slaughtered were carted off to various parts of the empire, And it was an absolute tragic thing that didn't have to happen. But it did, because they had rejected Messiah. We see these examples that God has a time and a place when he is exercising his judgment. Now, I want you to understand something as we look at these. There's a thread that runs through them. He always warns ahead of time. He always, it's his will We're told the Bible tells us it's God's will that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance, that all would turn. Do all? No, they don't. This is sobering, serious stuff, because many will perish. Judgment is real. The ultimate judgment that we're looking at here will come. All of these things that we're looking at here foreshadow the final worldwide judgment known as the tribulation the seven-year period of time, and it is coming. It will happen. Now, Jesus pointed to the flood and to Sodom and Gomorrah as examples of God's judgment. He used them as well. Their attitude was, well, it's just business as usual. Living life, enjoying pleasures, pursuits, all of that. I mean, it was just another day. There was no thought in their minds of God's judgment. Finally, Jesus himself uses an example of God's judgment from the Old Testament in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Now, I often use this passage when I uh, officiate at memorial services. And the reason why is because those are a time when people are more open. They're, they're, They're more likely to be thinking about their own eternal destiny disposition. And I've shared with people before, it's like when, as a young pastor, like 30 years ago, if I was invited to do a memorial service, I'd ask, would you mind if I shared the gospel? I don't ask. And I've never had anybody take me on about it, but because if they do, I'll say, well, then why did you ask a pastor to do it? The point is, is that it's a time when people are, they're tenderhearted about death. I mean, we live our lives in denial of death. I mean, we just think one day again, it'll be like the last. And that's what Paul is talking about. What he's getting at here with the day of the Lord, it will come. No getting around it. Jesus uses an example of God's judgment from the Old Testament here in John chapter three with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus came to him at night. And so he speaks of a time here in John three, when Israel, having been delivered from Egypt, was out in the wilderness. Remember, they had that 40 years where they wandered around because they refused to go into the land, turned an 11-day trip into a 40-mile thing. During that time, they had rebelled against God. I, I love it. I read in the book of Exodus, I think, oh, Lord, those people are just like us. They were under such hardship in Egypt. I mean, you know, but but they're saying, oh, we just remember the onions and the leeks and the boil. Oh, we just we had it so good at each. No, they did not. 
They were being commanded to make bricks without straw, and when they didn't get it right, they got beaten. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible time in their history. They romanticized it. And then they got mad at God because he delivered them and things weren't, they were just not as cushy as they thought that they should be or something. I don't know. But they rebelled against him. They complained against him. And as a result, God judged them. And he sent poisonous snakes throughout the camp. As a result of that, many people were dying. Now, it talked about God is a God of wrath. but He's also a God of love. I want to take a minute here and I'll finish this thought. I've got a, a like a two minute video that we're going to play. I want you to understand something about the wrath of God here. This is a clip from a movie called The American Gospel. And it's just a very effective way for us to look at this. So go ahead and, and, and put that up, would you guys? It's not as if, you know, sinners in hell have then come to their senses and have turned and saying, oh, God, please now, would you forgive me? And I love Christ and I worship him. No, no, the, the, the description, the way the Bible understands it is that there's a continuing sense of rebellion and thumbing your nose against God and a further hardening of their heart. We're not understanding that our greatest problem that needs to be addressed isn't just a, a sin problem of the things that we've done but it's rather the person whom we have done those sins against. The thing is that God is just a lot holier than many of us think. And if God really is holier, then that means sin is worse than many of us actually think. I think the way that the the Bible tries to explain that is, uh, you know, any sin against an infinite God carries infinite consequences. If I pick up a rock and I scratch a rock, I'm guilty of scratching the rock, but I'm not going to face any consequences. If I go to a dump site and I see a trashed car there and I take my key out and I scratch the car, people are going to say, hey, what are you doing? If I go to a used car lot and I scratch a car, right, now I'm, now I'm a criminal offender, right? But if I go on a Ferrari lot, I take the same key out and I scratch the car, right? My, my punishment just got way bigger, right? It's intensified. Why? because of the value of the thing I sinned against, the thing I scratched, right? So if God is infinitely valuable, if he is infinitely beautiful and infinitely set apart, and he's holy, right? One little scratch, one little white lie. It's, it's like high treason against the king of all the universe. God's justice demands the death of the sinner. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. So as we look at this, you see that God is a God of wrath. Now, there's a, a doctrine uh, about God that that we can understand, it's, and I'm not going to go deeply into it. It's called the simplicity of God. And what it is, is that which God possesses is what he is. In other words, God doesn't possess love. He is love. He doesn't possess wrath. He is wrath. He doesn't possess mercy. He is merciful and so on. So the attributes of God are not things that he holds on to. They're ways that he is. In that we know and we're looking at the fact that God is a God of wrath, infinite wrath. Yet he's also a God of infinite love. 
Now, as we're looking at the children of, uh, of Israel out there in the wilderness, in his wrath, he judged them. And yet, in his love, he wanted to make provision for them to escape his wrath. That's what he does. Now, there, it, it, what he does, he instructs Moses. And, and I remember when I first read this as a young Christian, I, 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 I read this and I thought, this just looks really odd. He says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to fashion a snake, a bronze serpent, and I want you to stick it on a pole, and then I want you to go and erect that pole in the middle of the camp. Now, Israel was laid out in a way that God had prescribed. I mean, all the the people that are camping out there in the wilderness. And he, he said, I want you to put it in this place where everybody in the entire camp, a couple million people, would be able to look and to see this pole. Now, what they have to do is look at that pole in order to be healed, in order to not have to suffer the effects of the snake bite. That takes us to John chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. In John three fourteen, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even, this is Jesus talking, breaking into the middle of his talk with Nicodemus, he says, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then he goes on, and this is, folks, you got to see the broader context. Probably the most famous verse in all of God's word is connected to this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He goes on to speak. Uh, the truth of the matter is that man is already condemned. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read, And you were dead in your trespass, not kind of dead, dead, spiritually dead. That's our condition. That's a, that's a condition of the fall. And so Jesus doesn't come to condemn us because we're already condemned by sin. Now, if you look at sin in its, in its broadest definition, it is God's judgment comes uh, by thoughts, words, and deeds. In other words, the things you think, the things you say, the things you do. How far into a day, not just today, do you get before you fall short of the glory of God? Folks, we are utterly reliant upon His grace. We are utterly reliant upon His mercy. We are utterly reliant on the fact that we don't look to a pole with a snake on it because that was a shadow of the cross. It's a shadow of the provision that God in his love made for us to escape his wrath. And that's why he says, all you have to do, all you don't, you, all you have to do is look to the cross. Now think about if you were out there in the wilderness and you've gotten bitten by one of those snakes, and, 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 and there you are. You know that you're dying. You watch the people in the tent next to you. They're dead. They're gone. And, and, and somebody comes up to you and they, they shake you and say, look, just look at that pole. All you've got to do is look at the pole. That's all you have to do. And I think about how many people would have gone, oh, I don't need some pole. That's, that's stupid. You know, whatever. Well, let's say that you did and you were healed. What would the attitude of your life look like in that moment towards anybody around you? You've got to look at the pole and you've got to do it. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here is, look, like that, I'm going to be lifted up. That whoever looks to me will be healed. 
healed from what? From the effects of sin. What's the effects of sin? Judgment. Wrath. Folks, it's a beautiful picture that Jesus outlines there. And I pray that we get this. Jesus' point with Nicodemus is that that humanity stands condemned because of sin and that he would be lifted up because God loves us and he would make provision for us. And folks, I believe that this is the key. I asked the question earlier, so so how do we live? What, how do we respond? Knowing that as believers, we're not going to be subject to the wrath of God. So how do I live? How do I interact with an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world around me? And I think this is the key with what we do with the knowledge of the coming day of the Lord. The judgment of God is imminent. I mean, we, we talk about the rapture being imminent, and that's true. What that means is that we are waiting for it. It will happen. The judgment of God is in that same classification. For unbelievers, Christ-rejecting people, evil, he will judge. The judgment is imminent. Whether or not we are alive to see the rapture in our lives, it's about redeeming the time wisely. i share a story. This is it's just a small example Something that happened to me recently, uh, I had I had to get some lab work done over at Providence Hospital. I had to get a blood draw for something, one thing or another. I don't remember what it was. So I showed up at the hospital there, and, and uh, I signed in. And then the woman behind the counter said, you know, it's going to be probably more than an hour before we can see you. Our computers are all wonky, and never mind the fact that somebody drove their car into the building. But, you know, so... It, she said, you know, it's going to be a while. And, and so I turned to Stacy and I said, I really don't want to sit here for an hour. Do you, how do you, do you like waiting rooms? <laughs> I mean, that's like getting your teeth drilled in my, you know, I just, it's just like, ugh. it's just, uh, and, and that plus, it's like you go sit down next to somebody and then you realize that this person's got the plague or something. It's like, get me out of here. And so I, I just said, look, I don't, I don't want to sit here and wait. Let's go. We have other errors to make and, and things to do. Uh, one of which was getting lunch at Mod Pizza. <clears throat> but so we went out and we did all of our other stuff and we got back to the lab just in time. I walked up to the window and the woman said, your name's already been called. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to reset the clock. I'm going to have to do this all over again. Uh, but then she smiled. She just said, look, I'll, I'll put you up next. And so <laughs> I was thankful for that. The point is, and the way that that connects with what we're talking about here, it's not about sitting around waiting. We know that these things are going to happen, but there's work to do. There are souls to be won. There are believers to be discipled. There are people out there desperately in need of God's love. And he has appointed the church to be his representation in carrying that out. He speaks here of the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. Now, understand, again, this concerns non-believers. This isn't something that's going to happen with us. This is for people that are rejecting Christ. But when he talks about being a thief in the night, he's connecting it to what is going to happen when judgment finally comes about. But Paul says here, that when he says that it comes as a thief in the night, what does that suggest to us? And, and folks, when I think about that, I mean, a thief doesn't show up at your house and, and shout, hey, I'm going to break in. No, he comes stealthily. He comes without notice. He, he At least unless he's a real 
<laughs> goofball, you know, he comes and he's going to kind of secretly come in. Well, what he's saying when he comes as a thief in the night is that he's going to come by surprise. There will be a suddenness to it. There will be an unexpectedness to his coming. And that's what he's getting at here. And Jesus uses the very same imagery in Matthew 24 as well as in Luke 12 in his teaching regarding the end times and God's coming judgment. This is, again, it's a theme that runs throughout. By the way, coming as a thief in the night is never used with reference to the rapture. Why? Because we're waiting for him. We're not wanting to be surprised by him. We're expecting him to return. If we're living our lives in the shadow of the things we're talking about here, we're saying, oh, Lord, come. Please come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. So in verse 3, he says, for when they say peace, and remember, here's that word they, when they say peace and safety, not us, not you, but they, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So oh, there are lots of angles. And, you know, talking about this peace and safety, a lot of different angles on that, people talking about what that means. I have my personal belief is that because Daniel 9 talks about Israel and the Revelation talks about Israel, that it's talking about peace and safety with regard to that. There are some commentators that say it's a reference back to the prophets in the Old Testament. But the point that's being made here that Paul's making with the Thessalonians is this will be a shock. This will be something that comes quickly. When they're saying peace and safety, when people are living their lives with a false sense of security, that the wrath of God will come upon them in that way. So in Matthew 24, Jesus uses the imagery of a woman in labor as a lead-up to the events we're looking at here. Her labor pains would increase in both frequency and intensity. They're saying, tell us, what will be the signs of your coming? He says, well, you know, there will be earthquakes and, and and famine, pestilence, disease, all of that, all of those things. He says, those are the, it's the beginning of sorrows. It's the beginning of labor pains. And it's a lead-up to this. However, here Paul uses labor pains as well, but I believe he's making a different point. When labor starts, and here's his point, the birth is imminent. It does not matter how much that woman doesn't want to have that baby. <laughs> if she goes into labor, there's a baby that's going to happen. It is, it is, it is absolutely going to happen. She can't not have the baby. It's certain. Now, in that moment, the baby is coming and she won't be able to escape that. He's saying that's what the coming, the day of the Lord will be like. It will not be escapable. You will not be able to get around it. Once you have, once that takes place, that's it. And it'll, it'll come about and there you will be out of time. Out of time. So as we live in an increasingly perilous world, Folks, you know, my pastor, Chuck Smith, used to tell, tell us, guys, he'd say, you know what? Major in the majors. Don't major in the minors with your people. And, 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 you know, and I love things like what we did Friday night. I love hanging out with you guys. I love the fellowship that we share. I truly do. I, I enjoy what God does when he links our lives together as a body. We've got to remember what we're here for. 
you know, I, it's not about, I, sometimes, sometimes I think we aim way too low. Like, well, let's have a membership drive. And we don't have a membership here, so if you're here, poof, you're a member. Okay, that's settled. <laughs> but the point is, is that, you know, we, we can, we can get caught up in these silly things. You know, the church membership, fancy lights, you know, entertainment instead of worship, which makes me bonkers. Or, or even, you know, having a sermon that sounds more like a TED talk, if you know what those are, than a message from God's divinely inspired word. We want substance to our experience with Christ. It's about first being, then making disciples. It's not about making fans. It's not about hype. It's about what it is to be connected together as the body of Christ. It's about loving, unbelieving people around us, people that are within the sphere of our lives, and loving them enough to risk. Often that's what's required. I risk. I don't know about you, but there are a whole group of people in my mind that come through my mind when I go through passages like this. Part of why it was a difficult week for me was as I'm looking at this and kind of living it out in my mind, thinking about those that I love, some I love desperately, that are not going to make it if they don't turn. It's like, God, give me the courage and the confidence to come to them in love. It doesn't, I'm not going to go beat people up. I'm not going to beat people into the kingdom. But to come to them in love, to love them enough to tell them the truth. And they say, look, you got to look to the cross. You're snake bit. If you don't, you won't make it. Sobering, sobering passages. It's about living securely in the knowledge that if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you won't go through the things that are outlined here. And that absolutely gives us great uh, purpose and great, uh, I, I rejoice in that knowledge. As we wrap up, I want to look at three things. The first is, what's your perspective? Part of waiting expectantly for the Lord's return is waiting responsibly. Don't be sitting in the waiting room. There's a big difference between knowing that Jesus could return today and knowing that he will return today. And Jesus is the one that said it. I didn't. He's the one that said, no one knows the hour or the day. We looked at that this morning. Now, so what do we do in the meantime? Well, he tells us in Luke chapter 19, he tells the parable of the minas. Now there he calls 10 servants together. He gets 10. It's a guy that's going to go away on a journey and, and, and he calls 10 of his servants together and he gives each one of them 10 minas. Now a mina was a unit of currency and there's some debate about how much it was worth. It was probably worth about a month's wage. So he gives him like almost a year's wages. So it's, it's a fair amount of money. So he gives each of these guys 10 minas. And then he gives them instructions, and he says, do business until I come. Now, it's pretty easy to make the leap into what Jesus is talking about in this parable, to what he's talking about and what we're talking about here this morning. The application here is that as we invest our lives wisely until our master returns, that that's what he wants of us. He tells us in Matthew chapter 6, there, looking at that investment, he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you're caught up in worldly pursuits and that's all you're doing, you're essentially wasting your life. You need to be about your father's business. So we invest 
Now, this is kingdom perspective here. We invest as we love others with zero expectation of a return from them. But we have every confidence of a return from him. Invest wisely. Why? Because it's all a matter of perspective. Now, my pastor used to tell me all the time, John, just enjoy the life God is giving you. John, enjoy the ministry God is giving you because he knew that he knows me and he knows that outside of all of that, I can be a stressed out guy. And I'm just being transparent with you. I mean, these things can stress me. But you know, and it's a constant reminder of my life. Just enjoy the life that God has given me. Enjoy it. Invest that life in people and things which pay dividends in eternity. I've got job skills. I mean, I, you know, I was working for a big corporation in management in Colorado when God called us here. And I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying that it was more important to do this than to do that because my heart at this point in my life was to invest in the kingdom, to invest in ways that would pay eternal dividends. And I invite you to consider those things. Second thing we look at here is be comforted by God's judgment. Now that sounds like an oxymoron. Comfort, judgment. Comfort, no, but you truly can be, and you really should be able to be comforted by the knowledge and the fact that God will judge. Look around. You know, we see the, the, again, the things that are spinning out of control in our world. We look at what's going on in, our, in the political arena. We look at what's going on in the cultural arena. I look at what's going on in, 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 in some aspects of the so-called Christian arena, and, and I just think, Lord, when? How long? As I mentioned, Lord, things are just, they're just spinning out of control. And it looks like you don't have this, but I also know that he does. It's extremely comforting to know that God will avenge evil. It's extremely comforting when I see what people are wanting to do with our children, to know that he will avenge evil. It's extremely comforting when I see uh, and I look at the corruption in government circles that he will avenge evil. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You can have actually have confidence in that and, and, and have great comfort in that knowledge. Because folks, <laughs> I love to say, I've read the end of the book. We win. Lastly, Turn your eyes upon Jesus as we consider these things. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And as we conclude this morning, I, I was thinking about this and I was praying. It's like, Lord, you know, I, I love to have a few points at the end of a message for us to kind of chew on. And a passage of scripture came to my mind that it really speaks for itself. And it's so applicable to where we're at in our world, to where we're at in the book of First Thessalonians. And so I'm just going to read it, and we can just take it in. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. And there the writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of, manner of some, but exhorting one another, and catch this, and so much more as you see the day approaching. 
That's for us. That's for you and I. That's something we can hang on to, that we can take to heart as we see the day approaching to live in this manner. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your divinely inspired word. Lord, it's just, it's just so rich. Even in difficult passages like this, Lord, there's great understanding, great comfort that can come from knowing that you truly are in control. It's something that we like to say, God's in control. And yet also, Lord, we see truly you are in control. None of these things surprises you. None of these things are catching you off guard. None of the things we see in the world around us uh, are, are, are foreign to you. And yet, Lord, we know that you will avenge evil. We know and we take confidence in the fact that you love us, that you beckon us to turn to the cross, that loving provision you made for us to escape your wrath, to escape judgment for sin. And so, Father, I pray for each of us. Lord, if there are those here that don't yet know you, I pray that today would be the day that today would be the day of salvation, the day of recognizing not a serpent on a pole, but a man on the cross that went there for us individually to bring forgiveness, restoration, and relief from the effects and the power of sin in our lives. So God, we just commit ourselves to you afresh. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us boldness and give us love as we interact with the world around us that is truly dying, suffering. And Lord, we know that we are the ones that have answers because we spend time here in your word. And so as you fill us up, Lord, let us go out there, spill Jesus on those we come across. We're so grateful, Lord, to be a part of your kingdom, to be a part of your family. Now, Lord, equip us as we go forward and go about our Father's business. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.